The scripture reading for this morning's message comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. This is the reading of God's word. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you joining us for the first time, last Sunday we just began a new sermon series called The Gospel Waltz. The Gospel Waltz is a practical tool that helps us apply the rhythm of the gospel to our daily lives. At our church, it is our core conviction that the more we grasp the gospel, the more we embrace it, understand it, and believe it down into our bones, the more fervent will be our worship, the more intimate our community, and more compassionate our outreach. We believe that applying the gospel to our everyday lived experience is the key to spiritual transformation. That's what we mean when we say we are a gospel-centered church. Please look at the screen to see a visual of what the gospel waltz looks like. You'll see three steps laid out in green. Repent, believe, and obey. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. Repent, believe, obey. Repent, believe, obey. You'll notice that you can enter the waltz at any one of the three steps. What's important is that you complete all of the steps. Too many of us dance only one or two steps of the waltz. As the diagram shows, if you only obey and repent, then that leads to moralism. On the other hand, if the only two steps you dance is obey and believe, that leads to legalism. And lastly, if you only repent and believe, that leads to licentiousness. A two-step dance is not the gospel. It leads to a truncated Christian life. It leads to a life that is not based on the complete gospel. And so each week, we're going to unpack each step of the gospel waltz. And this morning, we are going to focus on the step of repentance. Repentance. Repentance is my favorite part of being a Christian. There's nothing more I enjoy than repenting, said no one ever. (laughs) I have heard many people share with me that their favorite part of being a Christian is singing in worship. Others might tell me, I really enjoy studying the Bible, Pastor Jeff. I love theology and getting really deep. Still others, have said, my favorite part of the faith 
is community, the idea that I get to be part of a larger spiritual family. But to this day, I have never heard one person say to me, Pastor Jeff, I love repenting. It's the best part of my week. No. Why is that? Perhaps it's because some of us have a traumatic relationship with repentance. Repentance conjures up all kinds of negative feelings. If our current conceptions of God are largely shaped by our parental upbringing, then perhaps growing up, the times you repented, the times you confessed your sin was met with shame, terror, fear, and humiliation. When you did something wrong, when you messed up, you have memories of being berated, chastised, abused. When you told your parents sorry, you were met with angry faces, pointed fingers, and looks of disgust. How could you? How dare you? Shame on you. In your experience, when you repented, your parents made you feel worse about yourself not better. And so you learned early on, repentance is something you avoid. Repentance brings misery. Maybe that's why you don't like to repent. Others of us may not have as dysfunctional a relationship, but for you, the practice of repentance is like going to the dentist No one really goes to the dentist because they like the dentist. You go to the dentist because you should go see the dentist. You understand that it's necessary and healthy for good oral hygiene. You understand that you need to go through the discomfort if you want to keep your teeth as long as you can. In the same way, you understand that repentance is good and necessary for a healthy soul. It's something you need to do regularly, not because you like to, but because you have to, done out of duty rather than delight. But what if I were to tell you that repentance is one of the highest privileges of the Christian life? What if I were to tell you that repentance is one of the great joys of our faith, that true biblical repentance ought to make your heart sing? The problem is too many of us have repentance baggage. Too many of us have misconceptions that rob us of the joy of repentance. And so what I hope today to do today is to dispel some of these misconceptions in hopes that what you have is a more crystallized picture of what true biblical repentance looks like. Here in 2 Corinthians 7, we see that there's a difference between worldly grief and godly grief. There's a difference between worldly repentance and godly repentance. In this passage, Paul refers 
to a previous letter he sent to the Corinthians. Now, there's some debate as to what this letter uh, he's referring to is. Some say that the letter he's referring to is 1 Corinthians. Others argue that he actually sent another letter after 1 Corinthians and before 2 Corinthians, and so 2 Corinthians should really be called 3 Corinthians. I don't know. But the important thing is, in this second letter, Paul had the unenviable task of correcting the Corinthians and rebuking them for a sin that they had committed. I don't know what exactly that sin was, but it was serious enough for Paul to write it and bring it to the Corinthians' attention. And for Paul, because of his deep affection for this church, the idea of causing the Corinthians emotional distress was displeasing to him. As such, in verse 8, he mentions that he experienced a measure of regret after sending the letter. But that regret only lasted for a little while. Why? Because eventually this, this distress that the Corinthians were in led to repentance, true repentance that led to salvation. And so you can feel Paul's relief and joy over their repentance because Paul knew that worldly repentance can easily masquerade as godly repentance. It can confuse the two, but they're worlds apart because one leads to death and the other leads to life. And so what are some misconceptions about repentance that can make true repentance difficult? I've got three that I want to share. First, the first misconception about repentance is that repentance is for bad Christians. It's the assumption that the more mature a Christian you are, the more godly a believer you are, the less repenting you have to do. After all, godly Christians sin less, and if they sin less, they repent less, right? Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Though it's true that, objectively speaking, godlier Christians are more like Jesus than less godly ones, it is not their experience subjectively. Why? Because the closer to God you are, the more aware of your sinfulness you become. I mean, let me ask you, if you looked at a dimly lit mirror versus a really well-lit mirror, which mirror is going to reveal more of your flaws and imperfections? Is it not the well-lit mirror, right? Because you can see more clearly. In the same way, the, the more you walk with Christ, the godlier you become, the nearer you draw uh, you are to him. As a result, the light of his grace, the light of his 
uh, perfections shine more brightly on yourself, revealing more and more of the flaws and imperfections that lie within. When you get to know God more, you will see more of his patience. You will see more of his compassion. You'll see more of his selflessness. And as you embrace and understand what it truly means to be a loving person, what it truly means to be patient and compassionate, then you'll recognize how unloving, impatient, and selfish you are, right? Thus, the dynamic of the Christian life, those who grow in grace subjectively feel less holy than those who are far from God. Though it's counterintuitive, regular repentance is not a sign of spiritual disease, but a sign of spiritual health. Regular repentance is symptomatic of a healthy, vibrant walk with Jesus. This is why Martin Luther's first thesis If you remember in your history class, Martin Luther pinned 95 theses to uh, the uh, Wittenberg, Wittenberg, however you say it, uh, door. And the very first thesis says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance describes the entire life of believers. And so that's the first misconception I want to address, the the assumption that repentance is for bad Christians. No, it's a mark of a healthy one. And so, dear friends, when was the last time you repented? What was it that you repented of? If you're drawing a blank and can't think of a specific sin that you repented of, then that's more a sign of spiritual unhealth. Because spiritual healthiness is a regular rhythm, regular practice of repenting. Misconception number two, remorse equals repentance. It's the belief that so long as you feel bad about something you did, that means you've repented. But no, Paul reminds us that feeling bad does not necessarily mean you've repented. He tells us there's such a thing as worldly grief that's different from godly grief. If you think about it, even the most brazen, self-righteous criminal will feel bad about things they've done. They might feel overwhelming disappointment. They might feel deep regret. Can't believe what I just did. Shame on me. But just because you feel bad, just because you've had a good cry, doesn't necessarily mean you've repented. What is worldly grief? Worldly grief grieves over the impact of sin on you. It simply grieves over the impact sin has on you. For example, 
someone regrets getting wasted over the weekend. Because he got wasted over the weekend, he failed his exam on Monday. Oh, why did I drink so much? I should have studied. I regret drinking this weekend. Or here's another example. Someone gets caught plagiarizing one of their papers. Now, as a result of their plagiarism, they're out of a job, their reputation is ruined, and they likely might not be able to find a new job. Oh, why did I plagiarize? Who's going to hire me now? Or perhaps someone cheats on his wife. Oh no, why was I unfaithful? Now my wife wants a divorce. All of my assets are going to be separated in half. I won't get to see my children. I regret being unfaithful. What do you notice about all of these forms of regret? While the disappointment is sincere, the remorse great, in all of these examples, what they regret is not their sin as much as the consequences of their sin. Specifically, the impact their sin has on them personally. Godly grief is much more holistic. It's not just focused on the consequences, but it abhors the sin itself. It not only grieves the impact of sin on them personally, but especially how their sin impacts everyone involved, especially God. You're not just mad that you got caught. You're not just upset that your reputation is ruined. No, you end up hating your sin because of the way it wounded those you love, because of the way it cheated your colleague, because of the way it betrayed your spouse, because of the way it grieved the Holy Spirit. And so the sin itself becomes distasteful. The sin itself becomes repulsive. You begin to hate that sin. And when you hate something enough, you want to sever your relationship with that which you hate. I mean, have you ever heard someone say, I hate cilantro, which is why I eat it every day? No, when you hate something You want it as far away from you as possible. So too, our relationship with that sin. And so there's an eternal difference between worldly regret and godly repentance. Regret simply feels bad over what's happened, usually for selfish reasons. But with repentance, it ultimately leads to a desire to change. You see your sin, you loathe that sin, you never want to see that sin again. True repentance desires change. Misconception number three. This is perhaps the most difficult one to reprogram ourselves. So I'm going to spend the most time on it. When we think of repentance... We assume God is angry with us. We assume he's so mad at us 
that it's up to us to appease and assuage his anger. And so repentance is our way of trying to get God to no longer be mad at us, simply put. And what do we resort to to convince God, don't be angry with me anymore? One tactic is self-loathing. We demonstrate how much we loathe ourselves. We show God how sorry we are. We come up with elaborate prayers to demonstrate our contrition. Some people will go as far as punish themselves. You know what? After what I did, I don't deserve to eat dinner tonight. I'm going to go hungry. You know what? After what I did, I, I shouldn't hang out with friends this weekend. I deserve to be home. We, we, we punish ourselves. We discipline ourselves. And then we hoist up how bad we feel, how much we've punished ourselves to God and say, see God, look at what I've done. Please forgive me. Please don't be mad at me anymore. Another method is self-reforming. Self-loathing tries to appease God's anger by showing God how bad we feel. Self-reforming is the opposite, by showing God how committed we are. God, don't be angry with me. I know I'm messed up, but I'm a new man. I've turned over a new leaf. See, I'm going to start doing my quiet time every day. I'm going to start going to church every Sunday. I'm going to start giving faithfully to you. Look at these commitments I've made. Look at the person I want to be. For these reasons, God, don't be mad at me anymore. The reason why we resort to these tactics is because that's how it works in the real world, right? When we sin against our loved ones, we resort to one of these two methods. Please, please. Or, honey, here's some flowers. But when you see repentance in this way as a way to appease or assuage God's anger, then our confessions and vows become nothing more than ways to bribe God, don't they? In a way, you're negotiating the terms of your forgiveness. No wonder so many of us find repentance distasteful. Repentance becomes so transactional, a form of religious manipulation. In the end, you're not so much repenting so that you can get more of God. You're repenting so that you can get God off your back. Huge difference. This is how the prodigal son understood repentance. After the prodigal son ran away from home and wasted his father's inheritance on, on, on stupid living, he realizes, you know what? I need to return home. And he makes his steps towards repentance. But as he makes his way towards home, what does he assume about his father? He assumes that what's waiting for him at home is an angry dad. One who's livid 
at him for all that he has done. And so as he walks home, he's rehearsing a speech. Luke writes in verse 18 through 19 of chapter 15, I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. You'll notice both elements, both tactics, self-loathing and self-reforming. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against heaven and earth. And I'm going to work as one of your servants. I'm going to prove to you that I'm worthy to be accepted by you once again. Maybe that way he won't be angry with me anymore. But what happens when the son sees his father, he begins his speech. But before he even gets to finish it, the father swallows him up in his arms, kisses him, weeps over him, and tells his servants to bring a robe, to bring a ring, to kill a fatted calf, because it's time to party. The parable of the prodigal son reminds us that when we sin against our Abba Father, it is us who have turned away from him. But never in one moment has our Father ever turned away from us. And so when, it's, when we repent, we are not trying to turn God's heart towards us. His heart towards us has never wavered, has never changed. It only spills love and compassion towards us. When we repent, it's us who have to turn, not him. Never is there a moment that God is angry with us. Repentance is not the practice of persuading God to no longer be mad. Rather, repentance is the practice where we turn away from our sin and recognize how soul-sucking our sin is and turn to the one who is waiting for us in love. True biblical repentance is ultimately falling into the arms of a loving father. It's falling into the loving arms of our father. If you remember what Romans 2.4 says, does it say that God's anger leads us to repentance? God's wrath leads us to repentance? No, it says God's kindness leads us to repentance. You see, the reason why the prodigal son took so long to return home is because he thought waiting for him at home was an angry father. But had he had known that waiting for him at 
home was a loving, merciful father yearning for him, I guarantee he would have ran home much sooner. False repentance says this, I messed up, dad's going to kill me. Biblical repentance says this, I messed up, I need to call dad. What differentiates between false repentance and true repentance is your understanding of dad. False repentance assumes that God is angry at you. True repentance understands that God is waiting for you. You see, what makes the difference is the gospel. The God of the Bible is not a God that needs to be convinced that you are worthy of love. No, the gospel tells us that our God loved you before you ever loved him. And if nothing you ever did compelled him to love you in the first place, then nothing you ever do will ever convince him to stop loving you. That's the gospel. And so true repentance is not stepping into humiliation and shame. No, true repentance ultimately ends up with joy and celebration. While true repentance does involve contrition and remorse for what you've done, while it does involve a desire to change and to cast that sin away from you, it doesn't end there. Ultimately, true repentance leaves you in the loving arms of the Father because with true repentance, it's not about transactions. It's about a restored relationship. You get to be in fellowship with God again. So let me go full circle. Do you know why the godliest Christians repent more than less godly ones? It's because the more mature Christian is secure in his father's love. They're secure in their Father's grace and mercy. They know that no matter what they do, God is waiting for them in love. And when they know that God is waiting for them in love, it makes them repent faster and run home harder. While the less mature Christian are less secure in their Father's love, still unsure about how God feels about them. And so if they feel that God is going to pounce on them, chastise them, shame them, if that's what's waiting for them at home, then of course you're not going to want to repent. You feel bad enough already. Why go to one who will simply make you feel worse? And so the gospel makes all the difference. 
the more anchored you are in grace, the more secure you are in his love, the quicker you'll be to return home. If repentance means getting to jump into the arms of a loving God, now do you see why repentance is one of Christians' highest joys? I guarantee that being in the arms of his father at that moment may have been the apex of the prodigal son's life. Never forget that moment. I love this quote, and forgive me if I mispronounce his name, Mutwa Mahiani from Kenya, Africa. He writes this, Repentance is one of the Christian's highest privileges. A repentant Christian focuses on God's mercy and God's grace Any moment in our lives when we bask in God's mercy and grace is our highest moment, higher than when we feel snug in our decent performance and cannot think of anything we need to confess. I love that. Repentance leads to more joy than when we're not thinking we need to repent. Because when we repent, we're more intimately connected to the mercy and grace of God. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see what a joy and privilege repentance is. I do pray that you would apply this sermon by repenting today, this week, that you would ask God to probe your heart, reveal unto me anything that is displeasing to you, Because, Lord, I want to be near you. Because, Lord, I want to experience your love and joy. I don't want anything to stand in the way. And so, brothers and sisters, let's dance with Jesus. Let's not be afraid to dance with him. Let's not be afraid to repent because we are his beloved sons and daughters. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, O Lord, help us to see the beauty of repentance. Help us to see that repentance is not a dirty word. It's not something we need to be afraid of or scared of or reluctant to do. Because, Lord, we know that the moment we turn from our sin and turn towards you, we turn to someone who is waiting for us with open arms and a heart full of love. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for grace. We thank you that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, it changes everything. It changes how we normally respond to our sin, and it changes how we assume things about you. And so, Lord, may the gospel anchor itself more and more in our hearts so that we might grow in security and confidence that we are your beloved children. We pray this in Jesus' name.